All throughout 2021, we here at HPH are telling you all about the nightmare murder fest that was World War I. In this episode, we're getting you caught up to the year 1916 and telling you about possibly the worst place to have ever existed in human history. In terms of pure casualties, this battle wouldn't be the worst, but in terms of human misery, well, it tops the charts. And we're more than happy to tell you all about it from the comfort of our own homes while we get drunk and make really, really dumb jokes. Grab yourself a few drinks and settle in for this episode of 100 Proof History, titled The Battle of Verdun, 300 Days of Hell. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Fuck you, Mom. I don't want to do my homework. Well, you better do your homework, otherwise I'm going to tell your dad, Morty. I don't give a fuck about your rules. We'll see how tough you are when your dad gets home. Yes, honey, I am home. Ernst, you won't believe what Oliver's done today. He won't do his homework. I caught him with the dildo I keep between the mattress and box springs in his mouth, Ernst. He's inside the bedroom and he's got my panties on his head. Again? Well, he will be disciplined. Oliver done fucked up. Uh oh. Oliver done fucked up. <laughs> Oliver done fucked up. Oliver done fucked up. Oliver Dunn fucked up. Oliver Dunn, Oliver Dunn, Oliver Dunn, Oliver Dunn, Verdun, 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 Gas and sex and weed, yes. Drugs, sex, history, more sex, men, women, more men, booze, yes, 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 abs. Oil, spandex, smell it, butts, yes. <laughs> Dad, why'd you come into my room and play me that song? Well, Morty, I guess I need to teach you a lesson. So, I will now subject you to roughly an hour and an hour and a half of a history podcast about the Battle of Verdun. <laughs> scene Woo! that was amazing thank you so i miss those i miss those so much i'm gonna get wolf dick wolf dick just go ahead and do it man there we go oh yeah amazing appreciate it oh yeah that gets me in the mood for history and other things but you know (laughs) we're gonna talk about those mainly well mainly the other things (laughs) yeah the abs and oil well okay hello (laughs) i'm paying attention now feel like uh, every history podcast is just, you're like, yeah, they're talking about horrible things and just battles. And then the 101st move through the Ardennes Forest towards Belgium. 
oiled up abs. You're like, oh, fuck, I'm back in. I'm back in. <laughs> <laughs> well, then. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's not the most happy of topics. I figure we could at least start on a good note, you know, a positive note. Yeah, yeah, let's make them happy and then take that away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what my wife does to me, all right? You know? Yeah. Just, uh, it's like when you see the light go out in her eyes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you thought you were going to make a quick hundred bucks, did you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is your main host, Gregory. <laughs> Hello. And I am your... Uh, let's just call me the co-host. I've given up on the sexy part. I'm too old and decrepit for that. Other host, Christopher. And this is Hunter Proof History. And we are today, as we have mentioned, talking about the Battle of Verdun. We're actually going to get you caught up to the Battle of Verdun first. So we got some 1915 stuff. Build you back up. Fill in little, little short stories about that stuff. But uh, the main thrust, if you will, <laughs> will be the Battle of Verdun. And Greg, we had four... Books that we combine to read for this story. It's a lot. It is. And I feel like you're just begging me to spell it out for the listener. Chris read three <laughs> and, I, and me I one. Wasn't, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to leave it at we. It was going to be the group project where I show up and I did all the work. And Greg's over there high as a fucking kite. Uh, you deserve the credit. <laughs> you deserve the credit. Greg's over there. Stone of his mind. He's like, I just want to do... The, I just want to wrap it up to say thank you. We've been great, and they all laugh at me because I'm hilarious. I'll just wrap it up for you guys. God damn it! <laughs> uh, no, the three books I read were Verdun 1916 by Malcolm Brown, Battle Story Verdun 1916 by Chris McNabb, and Verdun: The Longest Battle of the Great War by Paul Jankowski. And I read Verdun: The Lost History of the Most Important Battle of World War One. 1914 to 1918 by John Mosier. Oh, all right. And I win for having the longest title. So it <laughs> makes up, like, the, your first two books, they don't even have as long of a title combined as this one. So it's kind of like you read two to my one. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, the reason we have to do this is because some of these battles are so well known. They've been discussed so much that each book takes like this weird, different angle. Like, Verdun 1916 by Malcolm Brown is like, let me tell you all the personal stories I collected from the soldiers. Whereas Battle Story Verdun has no stories. It's just, you know, troop movements and like basic overviews of the battle. So you have to combine all this stuff, put it together to kind of form a coherent narrative if you don't already know the story. It's nice when you get those books that can go into the, the minutia of battle and movement and politics, as well as include those, those human emotions. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes... You just end up reading one, and you're like, well, fuck, now I need this part of the story. And then then uh, you're an overachiever, and you read three fucking books because your name's Chris. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like I'm stupid. I'm not a spatial thinker. So when they start talking about troop movements on this side of the river and moved over here and pushed in this, I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying to me, man. I don't know. I need to read multiple books. I need, like, Verdun for dummies to understand these stories, so... Uh, it does help me, and hopefully, you know, you guys will get a good picture from us today. And we just want you to know we did all that work so you know that we're better than all the other podcasts. Just saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't keep having to pull my tits out to show how nice they are. Like <laughs> The listeners already seen. They know. They do know. Especially that swastika you have tattooed on the left breast. Okay. <laughs> You're confusing me with Edward Norton. Yeah. 
it's an easy mistake to make. You're also famously difficult to work with. Oh, that was good. That was good. <laughs> well, Gregory, we got a lot of war to cover. Are you ready to dive back into the muddy waters of World War One? I always say I can't fucking wait, but maybe I should say something else. I can't fucking wait. <laughs> well, a quick recap, since it's been a while since we talked World War One. Everything kicked off in 1914 when Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Serbia, which we covered in episode 66. Following the assassination, Austria declared war on Serbia, Germany declared war on Serbia and France, which caused Russia and England to join up and help the French. Basically like picking dodgeball teams, except the Germans really fucking sucked at it, as we'll find out going forward. Russia's like, yeah, let me get that, that really big muscly dude who can hurl a ball 80 miles an hour. Jeremy's like, let me get a uh, Stephen Hawking over there. What's that kid's name? I don't know. <laughs> Give me, come over here, wheels. You're on my team. You're like, oh, fuck. Oh, this is not going to end well, Germany. <laughs> In this analogy, Austria is the handicapped kid. History nerds will get it. All right, moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans immediately launched a complicated attack designed to knock France out of the fight. The failures of communication and the Russians actually showing up to fight the Germans caused the plan to fall apart and Germany was forced to run away crying following the Battle of the Marne, which we covered in episode 67. Check it out. The Ottoman Empire joined up with Germany and Austria after the Germans gave them a couple of boats, and so in 1915, England said, Let me see if I can do my British accent. Here we go, 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 here we are. Oh, you kraut fucks think you're the kings of coming up with stupidly complicated plans and then executing them terribly? Watch this shit. <laughs> They invaded the Gallipoli Peninsula in Turkey, and they got their poo pushed in. And Gregory, that was episode 71. Check it out. Now we've plugged everything we've done so far, so uh, listen to those things, you'll be all cut up. Now, as we have already told you guys many times, this story is all about the battle for done. But before we get to that torture porn, there are a few major things that happened in 1915 that you need to know all about. The English had put a naval blockade around German ports, and they were keeping them from receiving all of their Amazon Prime deliveries. Like that? Like that? That's a G-rated joke for you, Greg. Just nailed that shit. Sorry, I was responding to a text. <laughs> Alright, well, fuck you too. Well, the Germans... How unleashed... much did Bezos pay you to say that, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> Well, since those ports were blockaded, the Germans unleashed their Unterseeboots, which you stupid, ignorant Americans would call a submarine, finger quotes. Uncultured fucks. <laughs> Stupids. These U-boats began stalking the shipping lanes, capturing and sinking several merchant vessels. On May 7, 1915, the English passenger liner, the Lusitania, was sailing from New York towards Ireland despite being warned by the Germans that all ships in that area were fair game. Unterseeboot 20 spotted the ship, fired a torpedo, and struck the ship on the starboard side. And for, uh, you laymans, that's the right side if you're facing forward. Just yeah. Nautical Chris, expert. The nautical fucking expert over here that I, constantly gets shit wrong. I don't have to Google that every fucking time. <laughs> they say starboard port. <laughs> no. 
Greg will judge me if I don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly will. Since you wanted to call yourself a nautical expert. <laughs> well, a few seconds later, something in the ship exploded, and she went down in 18 minutes. That's mm. still pretty long, you know, just saying. I, I've never experienced that personally. Uh, that killed almost 1,200 people, Greg. You want to make your <laughs> blowjob joke? Jesus Christ, what's wrong with you? We don't got enough time, brother. <laughs> Among the dead were 128 Americans, and while this attack didn't draw the U.S. immediately into the war, it definitely turned sentiment against Germany, who would later be used as a recruiting tool. Yeah, I'm sure you know this, but there's several theories about what caused the second explosion that actually caused the ship to sink so quickly. But the most widely accepted theory is that a torpedo struck some explosives that the Brits were transporting in secret, under cover of darkness. Batman watching it. I don't know why. It's just because the darkness thing. <laughs> Poor Batman. <laughs> He was among the dead, that heavy armor. He just he went right to the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Help me, I can't swim. Aquaman's just laughing at its ass. Make fun of me now, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> I am the light. <laughs> it's real fucking dark where you're going. <laughs> to hell! I know you're going to the bottom of the ocean and it's dark, but I meant hell! <laughs> Fuck you, Batman! Why were you the famous one? Fuck you! <laughs> when I tell this story later, it'll be much cooler, the things I say. Much cooler. <laughs> Some guy's floating out there in that little lifesaver ring. He's like, I heard what you said. And Uncle Man's like, kill him, dolphins! Get that motherfucker! <laughs> no witnesses! Blood for the ocean! Blood for the ocean! <laughs> We must feed what nurtures us. Blood for the ocean. And he just goes about life. Everybody thinks he's a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Amazon Prime should make a show about that. Wait. Wait a second. I'm on oh, to you. Oh, shit. I'm on to you. Watch season one and two of The Boys on Amazon Prime right now. Fucking Jeff Bezos got to you. That's where that was coming from. Fucking projection. I it was in that did. COVID injection I got. Oh. <laughs> It's a chip controlling my brain. <laughs> it automatically downloaded this U2 album nobody wanted. No. And be sure to watch it on any Microsoft Surface device. <laughs> Bill Gates' chip was in it too, apparently. Check out Amazon Music on your favorite Zune device. They still make Zunes? They probably don't make Zunes anymore. No, they don't make Zunes. <laughs> I don't think they've made those in a decade. I'm old, Craig. Well, by the time the Lusitania had been sunk, things had gotten much, much worse on the actual battlefields. In early April, English and French intelligence learned that the Germans had developed a new dangerous chemical weapon that they planned to deploy at the battle near Ypres, Belgium. Well, chemical weapons weren't a new thing. In 1914, the French had deployed tear gas against the Germans, and Greg, they had got that tear gas from the police. From Sting himself. No. Yeah, I was going to say from... <laughs> Sting? We just talked about him last episode. No, 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 no. They got him for the police officers, which I thought was a neat little tie-in, because police still use that. So, you know, just a modern past thing. I don't know, it makes you think, right, listener? Right? Like, like 
they ate bread and we still eat bread. Yeah, don't ask me to actually make a, a deep comment connection on that because I can't actually back that up with anything. He's like, isn't that neat? They had guns and cops have guns. You're right. <laughs> Some of them were transported to the front line in automobiles. <laughs> and I'm daily transported to the front lines of my job. What? In an automobile. It's oh. crazy. History is crazy. Well, Krauss decided tear gas was for pussies. And using a chemist named Fritz Kraber, they developed poisonous gases. The first time they tried to use it was against the English, but they loaded it into explosive artillery shells, and the gas burned up when the shells detonated. That's a pretty stupid move. Then they tried launching gas shells against the Russians, but the frozen Russian air kept the gas from spreading. You know, it's like... That's a pretty stupid move. They've never seen gas before. Like, how will this work? <laughs> I don't know. Fuck it. Let's fire it off. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> But the third time is always the charm. It's what my wife tells me when she says, I'm going to divorce you and marry Greg. <laughs> News to me. <laughs> yeah. She's like, he's the main host. What are you, you little bitch-ass co-host? Can't even, can't even be co-main host of your own podcast. Oh, I'm leaving She's you. has got a point. Yeah. The lady raises a fair point. <laughs> I'll give her your number. God damn it. <laughs> as long as I get to watch. <laughs> you know what? Steel's starting to sound better by the minute. <laughs> I'd prefer it this way. <laughs> Maybe I get to join in on Easter and Christmas. <laughs> on the holidays. <laughs> the holy ones. <laughs> How about you, me, and Greg make this the holy trinity, baby? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, in April of 1915, the Germans buried nearly 6,000 canisters full of poisonous chlorine gas in front of their trenches at Ypres. At about 5 p.m. on April 22nd, when the wind was blowing west, the canisters were opened. A greenish cloud drifted toward the French lines. The soldiers had no idea what the cloud was, and they had no way to protect themselves. They ducked into their trenches. And that was the worst thing they could do, because the gas is heavier than air, which meant it settled right into those trenches. See, what they should have done is invented personal flight, like a jetpack or something, <laughs> to get above ground level. But they're so fucking stupid, God. they didn't realize the specific gravity of this gas was heavier than air. And they got in trenches because yeah. they're idiots. Fucking morons. Incapable French. of building personal rocket pack devices. I would have got on one of those parachutes that is pulled by a boat. Because then, you know, it pulls you away and you also get Parasail? the nice view. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Me too. I would have done that. But then when the charter boat, like, wanted to slow down so that we would descend and pay, that's when I would activate my personal rocket pack. Smart. Leave. God damn, you're so smart. Free ride, baby. Why didn't they just have bazookas, idiots? Just fire bazookas. Yeah. Yeah. Or like satellite lasers. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking primates, you know? It's it's sad when eight-year-old boys could come up with better war plans than the French. That's all I'm saying. Morons. Yeah, it's like that scene in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Bum, bum, bum. 
But instead of the primate lifting up a bone, he just jumps in a hole and waits to die. And waits for gas to come on top of him. Yeah. Idiots! Ah. <laughs> cucked themselves. That's all I'm saying. Continue, please. Lay cucked. Yes. <laughs> well, when chlorine gas comes in contact with water, it turns into hydrochloric acid. So when the men were hit with the gas, their eyes, their mouths, throats, and lungs all began to burn and dissolve. Over 1,100 French soldiers were killed, and another 7,000 were so badly injured they had to run away. The Germans were surprised by how effective the gas was, so they weren't prepared to launch a full-scale attack. I, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. That's just so fucking stupid and funny to me. We already talked about how they, they were just... They're just guessing with this shit. Like, they fire it off, and it burns, and then it freezes. And like, oh, fuck, that works? Um, oh, shit, what, what now? <laughs> you know? I didn't, uh-huh. uh, you know, you're talking up the girl at the bar, and she says yes, and you're like, oh. Wait. Uh, haven't, hadn't thought this far into my fantasy. I, I always I just, come around the yes. I just came up my pants. I'm done. I'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time the Germans did attack... Canadians had taken the French place in the line, and the Germans were repelled, because Canadians are badass fucking soldiers. And after this first attack, the French and the Canadians began pissing on rags, and using those rags as, like, improvised gas masks. You know, you just hold it around the nose and mouth, Mm -hmm. breathe as you would normally breathe. And the whole thought behind this was that they believed ammonia in their urine would neutralize that chlorine gas... But uh, it turns out it would have worked with pretty much any liquid because it was the fluid that was blocking the gas and not the ammonia. <laughs> and I've got a theory on this. And, you know, I think yeah. the truth of the matter is it was just one guy with like a piss rag. <laughs> you know, he had like a piss rag fetish and he got yeah. caught. So he had to like think on his toes real quick to convince everyone it was for non-sexual, very practical purposes. And then like, so rather than him got get caught for his weird fetish... Yeah. Everybody's just breathing in their own piss. Oh, Jacques's right. Look at him. He's he's still alive. He's alive. Look, he's jerking off. <laughs> he's very much alive. I am very dehydrated. Why don't you piss on this one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought the same thing. How did they figure that out? Like, well, shit, how are we going to stop this? I don't know. Let's piss on some rags and shove our face in it. That'll stop the gas. Like. What? <laughs> telling you. He was a piss rag fetish man. Wouldn't be the oh. first one I've met. Oh, Jacques, you dirty fuck. You do that, you're going to get some uh, Jacques itch on your face. You know what I'm hey! <laughs> <laughs> well, despite this new advance in murder technology, the Germans stayed mostly on the defensive in 1915. France launched two poorly executed offensives at Champagne and Artois and suffered heavy casualties in the effort. And a champagne and artois, that's what I call a, a lay boilermaker. It's what I'm drinking when I'm feeling fancy. Just drop a little shot in the Stella. The shot of champagne? Into the Stella, yeah. Whoa, calm down. <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to drive for like three days. <laughs> but you will have a headache. Yeah, for sure. It's like any amount of champagne does that. <laughs> My body can't metabolize the grapes anyway, so I immediately go into shock. Like a puppy dog. You like Violet from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? You just turn into a giant blueberry? Was it a blueberry or was it a grape? Yeah, it was a blueberry. <laughs> you nerd, you know kid shows. <laughs> Even though I originally referenced it, you're the fucking nerd. You know, before, 12-year-old Chris wasn't into that, but then 12-year-old Chris saw her turn, 
get all thick and juicy. Twelve-year-old Chris was like, something has just awoken in twelve-year-old Chris. I have to be very specific there. I can't say in me because I'm a goddamn sixty-year-old male, so it it sounds creepy. But I said something awoke when I saw that. Right? I just don't know why you keep saying you're sixty-something. But (laughs) yes, that big blue ass was enticing. Meanwhile, Russia was doing the typical Russia thing, and they were losing any battle that wasn't fought in temperatures warmer than 7 degrees Fahrenheit, because they were losing to the Germans. They suffered millions of casualties and had to take part in what they called the Great Retreat, which resulted in another 2 million casualties. That's nothing, really. Not, Not really going that great. That's actually when our buddy Tsar Nicholas II took over and left home, leaving his wife with Rasputin. And things just started spiraling out of control. Which is in episode, I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, but it's on the Patreon, so give us money. Put it in my thong. <laughs> I'll give you a nice little dance. <laughs> That's as far as I was going with that joke. I don't know. You're looking okay. at me for more. It's, uh, <laughs> no, that was it. it was, That's all I got. Just picture me in a thong taking money from people <laughs> at a strip club. God. I laughed. I laughed at it, Doug. No! <laughs> no, I expected more out of me, too, Chris. Oh. I, expected <laughs> I expected better. <laughs> That's okay. Our listener definitely didn't. All right, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in the winter of 1915, everyone went back to the old drawing board to come up with new plans. Just those little old-timey blueprints with Acme written on them, and I'll drop the safe on the French once they pick up the birdseed. Genius. I'm going to lead them off this cliff. I'm going to paint a non-cliff at the edge of the cliff. Oh, my gosh. So they're going to chase after me. <laughs> they're just, oh, they're going to fall to their deaths. It'll be funny. There'll be so you know, many widows and children that don't have fathers anymore. <laughs> you know, it's still better than the plans they come up with. I'm just saying. But we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> The French, English, and Russians all decided they attacked the Germans all at once. Hey, brilliant fucking idea. Hey, you know, instead of one at a time, like a bad guy or a hero in a ninja movie where the, the bad ninjas come at him one at a time, why don't we all just go at him at fucking once? And then maybe he can't fight us all off. We'll just gangbang this thing. And the main thrust was going to be at the Somme River during the summer of 1916. The Germans turned to their new leader, General Eric von Falkenhayn, who had his sights set on the French city of Verdun. Verdun sits south of the Ardennes Forest on the Meuse River. The city itself had 28 different fortresses surrounding it that had been built and reinforced over fucking centuries. To the French, it had major historic and sentimental value. In 1915, it was a mere 18 miles from the German front lines and was a salient from the French meaning it stuck out from their lines and was surrounded on three sides. It's kind of like just this little bitty bump in the line. Kind of like how Stalingrad was. Yeah, yeah. You can also listen to that episode. Yes! Uh, Nailing it! Okay, good. You took an opportunity to try to make money as opposed to making fun of my tiny dick as the tiny bump on the, the line. Thank you, Greg, for saving me that embarrassment. Yeah. Money's worth more than your embarrassment, Chris. <laughs> I can't spend your embarrassment. All it does is make me smile when I fall asleep at night. 
I wake up and I still got bills to pay, son. <laughs> That's right. Can't buy happiness. <laughs> well, since it was surrounded on three sides and just that little bump on the line, maybe it made military sense to capture the city. But after watching Germany turn the Belgian forts into gravel, the French military commander Joseph Joffre said it's probably best not to hang out in forts too much and practically abandon the city. He took the men and the guns from the forts and used the city as a place to let reservists and guys who had seen action elsewhere catch their breath. Thank God we made it to Verdun where nothing bad could ever happen to us. Right, fellas? Let's just sit back and relax. (laughs) So the question is, why did Eric von Falkenhayn attack there at Verdun? Well, that all depends on who you ask. Some historians say it was simply a probing attack that got out of hand and turned into an absolute slaughter. Some say he was kind of winging it and he didn't really have a solid plan of attack. But the most widely accepted answer, and perhaps the most metal of all answers, is that Falkenhayn wanted to create a human meat grinder. See, in 1919, when he was defending his decisions, Falkenhayn would say he had written a memo to Kaiser Wilhelm. Ah! Wilhelm, you dumb son of a bitch. Kaiser Wilhelm, saying he didn't care if they captured the city. The whole idea was to, quote, bleed France white, unquote. It's kind of racist. I don't think that's what he meant. (laughs) (laughs) He thought the French, who had suffered two million casualties by this point, would defend Verdun down to the last man. So he'd blow it to hell with artillery, capture the hills around it, and then murder the shit out of the French as they tried to take it all back. Yeah, that good old memo that he said he sent that nobody's ever seen anyway. (laughs) You know, he actually thought England was his strongest opponent, and France really wasn't worth his time. But since he couldn't attack England directly, he thought that he could, quote, knock the sword from England's hand, end quote, by defeating their main ally. And the whole idea was he wanted to basically agitate England into attacking before they were ready. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the real enemy. We need to catch them off guard. So if we can draw them into this battle before they're ready, then this is a good thing. Right. But again, yeah, who, who knows? knows what the fuck this dude was thinking? So why don't people believe Falkenhayn's claim to want to turn Verdun into a field fertilized by churned up dead Frenchmen? Well, like Greg said, the memo he wrote, it never fucking shows up. No one ever finds it in the official archives or anything like that. And to be fair, those the German army's archives were destroyed in World War II. Yes. So, yeah. Could have been there, but nobody's ever fucking seen it. Yeah. And he never told any of his generals that was his plan in 1915. And But there are several documents indicating that he just kind of wanted to press on pass for Dunn. Like, he wanted to... It was his... Like I said, it was probing attack. Uh... So there were a lot of people that said, hey, man, uh, why did so many humans die to not capture this fairly unimportant city? And they weren't super sold on his answer of, because I've wanted to see a lot of fucking humans die, okay? And so I guess it begs the question of us, do you believe Falkenhayn? Uh, I do not. Okay. Personally. Yeah. Uh, I know that you do. Yeah, I do. So, yeah. <laughs> spoiler for 30 seconds from now. But my whole thing is, 
He never mentioned this bleed the French white, anything like that. He never mentioned this being a war of attrition until they had already been involved in this battle for several weeks. Right. I think he saw that, it, oh, shit, I'm not just going to fucking come and take this. And then it was like, oh, well, you know, this is this is my plan. He never mentioned it to anybody before then. And, you know, I get that he wasn't friends with, like, any of the other fucking generals. But maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. And ma- maybe the reason is because he makes fucking poor decisions. That's fair. Yeah. And uh, this this memo, the thing that would have absolved him, nobody ever saw it. Except yeah. maybe the Kaiser, but... But he never mentioned it either, yeah. yeah you're exactly. Right. No, uh, let me first be on your side. Let me first defend your side, because I agree that no. to a certain extent. Um, because when you read it, it's kind of like... I don't want you on my side. I choose the other side. Well, I'm going to uh, disagree with you in a second. But it, it did remind me of, like, you're at work, and your boss is like, where is this this presentation that was due today? And you got to come up with something to explain why you haven't done it in a month and a half. Like, ah, you know, I, I I got busy and then, you know, I wanted your input on it, but you were off that day and then, you know, things happened and all this. And the boss is like, well, I walked past your desk and, you know, I saw you're looking at porn while looking at your fantasy football roster on the other screen. You're like, well, you know, I, I'd send it off to Betty in marketing, you know, to see what she could do with it. And she she took way too long to email me back. And, you know, that, that porn, I was hacked. Okay, I was hacked. Uh, someone <laughs> hacked into my computer. Uh, we gotta work on IT. You should really be bitching at Justin right now in IT. That motherfucker. Uh, he's really drop the ball. Um, I have a drinking problem. Yeah, just throwing <laughs> everything out. Just Need to whatever. Go to rehab. Sorry, boss. <laughs> yeah, whatever sticks. But no, I get that, and I get the the memo that he sent on Christmas. That's kind of like I called. I sent you an email on your day off, boss. You know, and shit didn't. Ha- you didn't get it, but. Um, there are things that happen in this battle that kind of make me think, okay, maybe he was going for attrition. Like, we're going to talk about, there's only one road that's supplying the whole French force, and he never does anything to attack that, where he could just, like, decimate their supply lines and then come in and wipe out the forces. It, it does seem like there's not this drive to push forward, uh, just take strategic points. And I get not telling your guys, hey, I just want to kill as many fuckers as I can because that kind of demoralizes your own troops. Instead of, we're capturing land, we're moving forward. I just like, I just want to kill motherfuckers. And then they start thinking, well, what's the point of me taking this fucking hill? All my buddies died trying to take this hill. And then, you know, your only thing you cared about is how many other guys killed. Um, there's a great line from the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary where they said, we're killing 10 of them for every one of us. And someone told Robert McNamara, he's like, listen, no one gives a shit about the 10. They care about the one. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I think maybe Falkenhayn was doing. He's like, I'm not going to tell these guys what the objective is, because if I do, they're just going to be completely demoralized. But I can see it from both sides. But I, I like to think that he was going for this meat grinder type thing. I like to think he wanted to kill as much as he fucking could. Fair enough. Either way, Germany began preparations. They built seven new railroads to deliver supplies to Verdun. They built massive underground concrete bunkers that could hold hundreds of men and conceal their movements. They used superior air power to control the skies and keep the French from spying on their advances, and that was important because they brought over 1,200 artillery pieces with them. But eventually the French did figure out an attack was coming because, all you know, you can't hide all that shit coming. Like, they're out there building railroad and singing, I've been working on the railroad and banging hammers... 
<laughs> as they're, you know, moving forward. The French also figured that Verdun was so militarily unimportant, the attack was just a feint designed to draw their forces away from more important areas. In fact, the general in charge of the Verdun region said, I'm not even going to ask for more guns and men, because then high command will realize that I have guns and men here, and they'll take them away and put them in other fucking places. Just got to keep it on a hush-hush. Yeah. But on the morning of February 21st, 1916, the German artillery opened fire on the French lines around Verdun, and they quickly realized this was no diversionary attack. Not at all. And that's where we'll take a break. And Greg will come back and tell you about murder and death and, oh, so much cool shit that you're like, I kind of feel bad that I'm enjoying this so much. It's like when you're, uh, you're at your cousin's wedding, mm-hmm. and then it goes to the reception, and there's like the father-daughter dance, and you know your uncle comes in and dances with your cousin, mm-hmm. you know, beautiful bride, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as you know, like kind of towards the end of like the first dance between the the husband and the wife, everybody kind of joins in on the dancing, all right, and then your uncle comes over to you and he's like, he tries to cut in. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you're, you're dancing with your woman, and he he cuts. He's like, "May I have this dance?" And you're like, "Oh, y- yes, sir. Go ahead." And he's like, "No, do you mind, ma'am?" <laughs> she's like, "No." And then he he dances with you, and it's like, "Man, I don't know why this feels good." You yeah, know? but you can't you can't really admit that to yourself. That's how the second half is going to be. That's right. It feels good, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe I don't know. I know it helps while you're dancing. Maybe it'll help while you're listening to this tale of murder. If you just play Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On, maybe that'll make you feel good about the whole situation. And close your eyes and picture your uncle. Yep. Ask him for that dance. So strapping. So Holding handsome. your your hand. Mm-hmm. Me, Greg. Holding my hand mm-hmm. delicately. Asking for that dance. While you put mm-hmm. your, your feet on top of his shoes, it's all... Sweet and innocent so he can move you around the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. I feel like my feet would crush his. Oh, yeah, because you're an adult. Yes, yes. yes okay, uh, let's take let's a break. break. <laughs> All right, we are back from break. Good times were had by all. You know, we saw our families and stuff. Greg did it like a shady under the table deal where he was selling stuff. You know, just trying to make a few bucks on the side. Yeah, we're not really going to get into the... I bought a PlayStation 5 from my friend. Oh, okay. That That's not what you told me. Because I already have one. No big deal. Anyway, it's time to do it. And we're going to do it right, people. We're going to do the best thing. This podcast does, and that's drink, and we're gonna have some second half seltzers. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. And three, two, one. Oh, my fingernails aren't long enough. Here we go. Hmm. Ah, it's refreshing. It's so goddamn refreshing. Just like this podcast, we mix it up, we keep it light and airy while we're talking about murder, which is what Greg is about to tell us about. 
Also, just like this podcast, mine is fucking disgusting. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not gonna. Oh, slam it, slam I'm it. I'm not gonna name any names, <laughs> yeah. but rhymes with Popo Kiko. <laughs> No, these new fucking Topo Chico seltzers. Uh huh. Awful. They're farty. (laughs) Farty. Skunk to them. I I don't know how else to describe it. It's like, yeah, I get it. It's like the Corona seltzers, or like they're trying to make it taste like there's some beer in there, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's (laughs) ringing endorsement from 100 Proof History once again. It's more a threat to other seltzer companies if you don't pay me. This is what's gonna happen. Get <laughs> your shit together. If Topo Chico offered you like ten bucks, you'd be like, "Oh, oh okay, it's delicious." You gotta touch my penis with at least one finger. <laughs> okay, deal, deal. <laughs> Topo Chico's the best seltzer I've ever had. They don't even have to give you the finger; just like the back of the fingernail in a glove. It's, it's fine. It's not, I know you, you made contact. It's enough. Yeah. It's, it's, a men- it's a mental thing for me. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, Greg, let's get back into this story. How about it? At 7 a.m. on February 21st, the Germans launched artillery attacks designed to take out a key bridge over the Meuse River in the Verdun railway station. Then they turned their attention on the French soldiers. The German artillery raked back and forth along the line, hitting each position every 15 minutes like a goddamn death sprinkler. Which is a badass metal band name. Yeah, and um, I found a clip on YouTube, kind of what this might sound like. Uh, we were debating this before we came on air, if this is like authentic World War One artillery. Maybe it's World War II artillery. But it just still, still kind of gives you the idea of what this might sound like. So I'm going to go ahead and play a little bit of that for you. And so what you hear now is the firing in the distance. And this is called drum fire because it's like... All the way back in the distance. Like, ah, it's just normal morning. Brew my coffee. Just having a conversation with my best bud, Greg. You know, uh, Greg, nothing bad's ever going to happen to us here in Verdun. We're having a good day. You know, just another fucking day in France. Loving life. Um, yeah, I can't imagine anything terrible ever happening here. You know, nothing, like, loud and disturbing. Whoa! I find you sexually attractive! Oh, shit, the the artillery stopped. Uh, It stopped. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) I thought we were about to die. I'm sorry, I just wanted you to know. Um... (laughs) That's just his general idea of what that would have sounded like, and Greg's going to tell you how long that fucking lasted. If I so choose, not because Chris said it. Oh, no, I control everything. That's the secret (laughs) part. (laughs) The French began to suffer casualties in ridiculous numbers. One soldier would later say that out of every five men, two were blown to bits, two were buried alive, and the fifth was waiting for his turn. Another said... And I know I normally do the accents, but uh, yeah, pretty pretty serious shit, so I'm just going to say it normal. Okay. And I think I deserve some sort of award for that. Just you know, write that down, Chris. Okay. The trees are cut down like wisps of straw. 
Some shells come crashing out of the smoke. The dust produced by the upheaval of the earth creates a fog which prevents us from seeing very far. All day we are bent double. We have to abandon our shelter and go to ground in a deep crater. We are surrounded by wounding and dying men whom we are totally unable to help. End quote. The trees were turned into matchsticks by the bombardment, each one being turned into chunks of flying wooden shrapnel. And there are several accounts of trees being uprooted and tossed into the air by explosions, and then being hit by so many additional shells that they'd be juggled in the air until they were basically completely torn apart. Following the barrage, many soldiers would compare the once heavily wooded areas to asparagus farms. And for you kids that don't eat your vegetables, <laughs> those look like very tiny twigs coming out of the ground. And you eat it, and you always forget that you ate it, and then you go pee, and you're like, what the fuck is that smell? And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, asparagus. I'm, I forgot. I forgot that I did that. <laughs> oh. That one soldier... He's fucking sniffing his pee rag. He's just extra hard. <laughs> oh, this is so good. <laughs> Everybody's just gasping and dying around him, choking on lone fluids in their lungs. Like, you guys got to try this shit. I am so hard right now. He's nutting. <laughs> and his nuts smell like asparagus, too. Science. Hmm. The artillery fire on February 21st was so intense it could be heard a hundred miles away. French historian Jacques Percard said, From now on the expression, the bombardment of Verdun, will live on in the language of the combatants to describe not a rain of shells, but a hailstorm, a flood. Yep, and French starship captain Jean-Luc Picard said, Make it so. As he was Scottish, but French somehow. I don't know how that show worked. Space is weird, man. Just well, it's like Hollywood, you know, anytime it's non-American, it's English accent. <laughs> right. Luckily for the French, the Germans wrapped up the bombardment after only five hours. Yes. And so around noon, the French crawled out of their cover and moved back to the front lines because they were 100% sure the German infantry attack was on its way. And there was one guy's like, man... I, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get to fucking Subway and get my chicken teriyaki sub before that intern upstairs gets out here and just orders for everybody. It takes a goddamn whole lunch break. It takes the whole hour. And then I don't get to eat my sandwich and listen to my funny history podcast in my car while I'm just dying laughing. I don't think we can include that, Chris. Why is that? Well, because we advertised for Subway that one time and then they seemingly, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's weird to me too. Yeah. But the very next podcast sent us a cease and desist order <laughs> from talking about Subway. But their subs are so delicious, and they definitely don't make me want to kill myself in their bathroom. I don't understand. All I'm saying is once they got rid of that old-timey Manhattan newspaper talking about the Subway open, and once they got rid of that decor in their, their Subway franchises, I was out. I was done. I was like, nope, I am not happy anymore. I'm going to go into this bathroom and kill myself. You did it again, you bastards. We're getting sued now. <laughs> Fine, bring it on, Subway. <laughs> and also, please bring two foot-long chicken teriyaki subs. Because, <laughs> boy, are those filling. <laughs> yep. And I am filling that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's why they're going to sue us. That right there. <laughs> 
The Germans then all simultaneously shouted, Psych! And using airplanes as spotters, launched another artillery barrage. The strikes would go on until 5 p.m., and a total of over 1 million artillery shells would be fired by the Germans on that one day. That's fucking crazy. Uh, and of course, artillery would be used on both sides throughout this entire 300-day battle. Uh, by the time it wrapped up in December, every single square yard of the battlefield would have been hit by an average of six shells. And that's just, that's insane, man. Like, you go into your kitchen, you got 12-inch by 12-inch tiles, you take nine of those, you think, six explosions right there. How the hell do you survive that? How do you make make it out of that place? It's just crazy. Funny of you to assume our listener's kitchen isn't uh, linoleum. Oh, just rolled out over the floor. <laughs> I'm sorry that he's so insensitive. Listener. I'm sorry. Please don't go to a subway anytime soon. Right now, there's some one of our listeners got his AirPods in. He pulls them out, leans over the lady's like, "Hey, what kind of tile you got in this soup kitchen?" Okay, well, that's not right. Anyway, all right, I'll put it back. AirPods back in. <laughs> Why does he have AirPods? Well, I don't know. He's homeless and he's got AirPods. <laughs> it's part of the joke. You're one of those people that think homeless people just have you know made a series of bad financial decisions <laughs> yeah. to get where they are. Gets out of his <laughs> bins, puts his air, air AirPods in, walks in the soup kitchen, <laughs> adjusts his Armani suit. <laughs> That's right. I invested at GameStop when it hit four hundred and fifty dollars. I'm here now. Oh. <laughs> uh. At 5 p.m., the Germans finally launched their infantry attacks. Gone were the spiked pointy hats they had started the war with. They had been replaced with an early version of the Stahlhelm, a metal helmet that most people probably associate with the Wehrmacht of World War II. They also carried flamethrowers and moved in smaller groups of what they called stormtroopers, which were designed to move fast and assault positions on the enemy lines that might be vulnerable. That day, they didn't make much progress before dark, because the French had survived the attacks well enough to move back into their positions and began to mow down the advancing Germans. But, over the next few days, the Germans actually advanced several miles toward the city of Verdun, which, by World War I standards, was a goddamn road trip of epic proportions. Yeah, Chevy Chase was there, and you get that holiday road, as they make, like, a hundred yards. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know what wacky hijinks are waiting for us ahead, guys, but uh, looking forward to it. You know, and I know the movie came out at a certain time, but if it came out today, you remember when uh, that girl pulled up next to him and was flirting with him a little bit? Yeah, yeah. What really happened is he sat there and fucking jerked off while his wife was asleep in the passenger seat and his kids <laughs> were, you know, doing He's staring at his back. phone. He's got Pornhub pulled up on his phone. He's <laughs> driving with his knees. <laughs> <laughs> That's modern day. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like back back then, uh, <laughs> he was like, "Oh, looking at her, like, oh fuck yeah!" But now he'd just be like waving her ahead, like, "Get out of here!" He's like, "Shield, I'm looking at porn." Yeah, he's like trying to turn the phones just in case she can see it from across the way. He's like, "No, no, 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 no! This is all for me, all for me. <laughs> You're not my stepmother. Stop looking at this." <laughs> You're not a trap. I only like traps now. <laughs> That's modern day. Yeah. In modern day, and the phone connects to the Bluetooth, and it wakes everybody in the car up. 
That's the fear, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he gets lucky. Maybe it's just that drum fill that starts the Pornhub soundtrack. And like, oh, I'm sorry. I turned on the radio. Change the channel. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, why are your pants down? Oh, I I really had to... Had to had to pee. Yeah. Leather seats are just so sweaty, and we're driving through the desert. <laughs> and the pee thing. And if you offer any excuses, I'll take those too. Fuck you, Barbo. We haven't had sex in six years. This is our last gasp. This vacation, and you brought the kids. We're not gonna have sex with the kids here. Jesus Christ, Wally World. That's not even a real fucking amusement park. Just give it up. That's it. It's over. I'm just going back to watch my porn. I'm gonna run this goddamn car off a bridge. <laughs> oh, I don't feel like laughing anymore. <laughs> You know, they say there's some truth to humor. I'm just saying. <laughs> if my wife is listening, I will take this fucking car off a bridge. It didn't sound like humor, Chris. That's why I wasn't laughing. <laughs> it's a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember how we said the city was sparsely defended by reservists? Over the 22nd and 23rd, it began to show as the lines constantly broke and ran, and the French began to launch artillery strikes on their own positions by accident. But with all that said, the limited French military presence in Verdun was about to change dramatically. And that's a good thing, because we don't really get into it too much here, but the French were super, super outclassed militarily, um, especially by artillery during this entire battle. Yeah. Like, the Germans had mobile artillery that would take just a couple men to move. The French did not. Like, all of their emplacements had to be just, boom, locked down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Germans could actually accurately fire from multiple kilometers away and do it in an arcing fashion. And if you're thinking about World War One warfare, everybody's in trenches and all that shit, the French, their artillery kind of fired straight. Yeah. And so it really didn't have that arc to be able to get into those trenches. And the way that artillery in this era was really designed to work was they wanted it to detonate above the ground so that it could disperse over the ground and cause mass damage. Well, I mean, it didn't even matter if the French did that at this point because it would not get into those trenches. Right. And that's that's a really good point, actually, because the French only had 75 millimeter guns. And like you said, they were greatly outclassed by the, the German guns. They had these 420 millimeter artillery cannons, like, that's freaking huge. Really fucking big shells that are being fired from miles away. Um, and it also kind of goes against the whole idiots who believe in a flat earth, right? Because the Germans actually had to calculate the curvature of the earth to fire. They were so far away. And, you know, they were so accurate from that range because they took into that calculation into uh, consideration. Well, it's not just that. Uh, the French guns had, like, zero recoil mechanism. Yeah. So they were wildly inaccurate. Yeah, they like you said, they had to be basically mounted in place to keep that recoil from knocking them out of battery. Right, but they didn't have the recoil mechanism to where it would even stop it from being just wildly inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it, it didn't have anywhere for the action to go, basically, so it would knock it off trajectory before it even came yeah. out of the barrel. And the funny thing is, that was still better than the British guns, what they had at this point. 
the Germans had an artillery advantage way beyond anybody else in this war. Yeah, everybody was still using like 1870s, 1880s technology, and you know we're in the 19 teens at this point. So yeah, good point, Gregory. Oh, thank you. Well, like I said, the uh, French presence in Verdun was about to uh, was about to change, and uh, Joseph Joffre's chief of staff woke him up and said, "We need to rush to defend this city. You said we shouldn't bother defending." Joffre said, "Okay, fine, but I'm going back to bed, so." Yeah, you take care of it. The chief of staff rushed to inform 59-year-old General Philippe Pétain that he would be in charge of the defense. That night, however, Pétain wasn't at his headquarters. He was in Paris, balls deep inside his mistress. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about this fella, we got an episode on that shit, too. Yeah. and Patreon. We, yeah, mm. we did an episode where he got captured by the Germans, but we needed to do an episode where he helped the Nazis. This dude has a very interesting story, Philippe Patton. Just a a very curvy, like roller coastery ride through French history. Yeah, it's it's wild that all this happened to one old dude from France. Yeah. <laughs> well, when they finally tracked Patton down, he said he'd be there the next morning. I gotta finish this business. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Don't tell my wife where I'm at. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm on official orders. That's what you tell her. Yeah. Don't tell her the orders are from my mistress. Yeah. To make her pussy pop. <laughs> you know that what what they said in the 19 teens. That's, that's the what they said. They that's what they said. Yeah. No, it is funny that he had become this great World War One hero after this battle. And you got to think about the the guy on the front lines in Verdun right now, just getting shelled, like. Germans rushing at him, rats everywhere, dead corpses, shell holes, and gas, and all this. And this dude's, like, said balls deep in his mistress. And, like, mm. this guy is a goddamn French hero. Salute. <laughs> you know? Love it. I love it. Yeah. I will do anything for this man. Anything. <laughs> I'll die for him immediately. <laughs> I mean, current day. Yeah. This ghost comes to me. <laughs> I made sacrifices for you. Before you knew it, I was the original playboy. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. What can I say? I didn't even use a condom. We didn't <laughs> even do that. I have oh. failed to live up to your expectations, <laughs> I'm General. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, the spirit of Peyton aside. That next day, while Patan was presumably doing that weird, you know, post-sex bathroom visit where your pee kind of, you know, kind of splits in <laughs> two different directions, you usually got to get the toilet paper out. Like, oh, fuck. Does that happen to ladies? Toilet or... paper roll. Is that just me? <laughs> it actually hits the toilet paper roll. You're like, no! Stop! No! That's what I'm using to clean this! <laughs> Well, that next day, the Germans struck a major moral victory because this motherfucker couldn't be bothered getting out of bed with the mistress <laughs> to maybe give some orders. Yeah. Take it away. The most prized fort in Oliver Dunn was uh, Fort Duamon. And there was a ton of forts around. Right. Like actual Verdun. A ton of them. But this was the big daddy. This was big daddy. Yeah. Fort Duamon. Mm. Mm. <sighs> French butthole kiss. <laughs> but yeah, that next morning, the Germans fucking captured it. Mm -hmm. 
Of course, you're probably picturing this epic bloody siege, but let's be honest, it wasn't that different from what you're imagining, mm-hmm. but it was a it was a little different. Just a little, a little different. A little bit. So, I'll tell you the very minute difference. Turns out that a small German unit had wandered up to the fort against orders from on high. The French didn't notice as the Germans built a human pyramid and hoisted a sergeant named Kunze into the fort armed with only a pistol. Kunze then went room to room, capturing each and every French soldier inside the fort. A total of 57 men! Before opening the front door and letting his unit inside. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. And the story is like he's going room to room and you open it and these two guys are playing cards. And, you know, these guys are just kind of like laying in bed. He opens one and one's in a French maid's outfit. And he's like, wait, <laughs> finish what you are doing. Kunza wants to watch. He speaks in the third person. <laughs> yeah, he does, man. Hey, when you're this badass, you capture a whole fort by yourself. You can speak in third person. I'm just going to give it to him. Yeah, I would do. Well, despite the French initially labeling Fort Douaumont as unimportant, once it fell, the German papers celebrated, and the French papers caused a panic. As a result, over the next two years, over 120,000 artillery shells would be fired at the fort, and thousands upon thousands of men would die trying to take it back. And that's just fucking crazy, because they didn't give a shit about it. They abandoned it. But now the Germans had it, it's like, I want it. Why are you with my ex-girlfriend? What's so great about her? uh... (laughs) Start texting her. Hey, babe. Yeah. Feel like what we had was good. You broke up with me. Uh, You know, know, but now I don't want to break up with you. (laughs) Right? I want you to break up with that guy. (laughs) You can't be happy, Charlene. Fuck you. (laughs) And neither can Chad Tyrone. (laughs) Chad Tyrone. It's very uh, ambiguous. It's a very common name. There's a lot of Chad Tyrones floating around there. <laughs> like half of our listeners, are like, he's talking about me. How the fuck did he know my name? Well, I'm not even. I'm not even on Patreon. <laughs> the French began to pour troops and supplies into Verdun by sending a constant stream of trucks up and down the only road that connected the city to the French supply line. Following the war, it would become known as the Sacred Way. It was so vital that all horses were banned from using it, and it was divided into six sections so that if a truck broke down, a mechanic would be close by and the truck would be pushed off the road and repaired. One of the heroic French drivers asked the unwitting public to imagine the horrors of war when he said, Can you see a driver alone in his lorry, whose eyes are shutting when a shock wakes him suddenly, who is obliged to sing, to sit very upright to swear at himself, so as not to sleep, not to throw his lorry into a ravine, not to get it stuck in the mud, not to knock to pieces the one in front. If you can imagine this, be happy that you can spend your nights comfortably <laughs> asleep in a bed. I love this. I'm like, this dude obviously has never driven home drunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I can do both of those things. This is a, the, the, the guy... In 1916, there's not a lot of cars floating around. This is the guy that figured out, you're really tired, man. It's hard to fucking stay awake while you're driving. Like, I've got the, you know, radar love cranked. I'm slapping myself in the face. Air conditioner full blast. Nothing's working. (laughs) Radar love. (laughs) 
<laughs> but back then he's like, I'm a goddamn hero. Look at me. <laughs> you know, like this guy is the ultimate patriot. Because he's like, like, what'd you do it for done? Oh, man, let me tell you how fucking terrible this was. Like he's talking to a guy who's missing half his arm who got blown to shit by artillery on the first day. He's like, a bump woke me up. <laughs> yeah, I was almost asleep and i hit a bump and i was like oh god i can't fall asleep i gotta get these crackers to the front line <laughs> how else will they eat their cheese caucasian god. please caucasian, <laughs> no, that's please. not what i meant but yes <laughs> once the french soldiers made it to the end of the sacred way they still had to move up from the communication trenches to the front line and this is it's one of those big misconceptions i feel like with world war one it's it's you got a trench here, no man's land, trench here. Right. Not really how it worked. Like Miles. you had a series Yeah. Yeah, a series of trenches where you'd have like back lines that would rotate forward, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just no, yeah, kind of wanted to that's good throw point. that out there. No, I do think you're right. I think people think uh two trench lines just one across from the other, they're fighting. No, they're miles right. and miles of connected trench lines. Uh and this communications trench. Uh, one source talks about it when they're trying to make their way to the front. Like, the trenches kind of just disappear because of the artillery fire, and it's basically mm-hmm. just a path that they're following. Well, they always, like, pretty much have at least three trench lines. Mm-hmm. But those are also subject to change. Right. You know, when they say, like, oh, they gained 13 yards over a couple months. I mean, if you think about the logistics in that, that's actually, it's a lot. Right. But it's also not a lot because... It's just people dying. Right. It's thousands of people yeah. dying to gain that 13 yards. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a lot of fucking work logistically that goes into that 13 yards. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, moving from the communication trenches to the front line for the French, it was, uh, I mean, just doing it was incredibly dangerous and often required them to move at night. During these marches, entire platoons would get lost in the dark and men would fall into the shell holes and drown in the rain that had collected in them. You have to remember, these dudes are carrying a ton of shit. Yeah. Not only what they're armed in and what all that, but just all the packs that they're carrying. Yeah, and if you stop to help your buddy, good chances are you're going to drown with him. Like, it'd be two men in the shell hole drowning. Mm-hmm. So you just had to watch your, your best friend from your hometown drown. Because not only is it all that water, but it's all that mud. Mm-hmm. People get stuck in fucking mud. News flash to the world. People get stuck in mud. <laughs> it wasn't uncommon for half the men who arrived to never actually make it to the fight. Falkenhayn had wanted to make this a battle of attrition, and the French were playing right into his hands. Unfortunately for Germany, the French also had guns and artillery and gas, and so they were dying in almost equal numbers as they fought over hills with names like Dead Man's Hill and the even more sinister-sounding Hill 304. Oh, did you get a chill too? (laughs) One such hill would switch hands 13 times throughout the battle after attacks and counterattacks resulted in thousands of deaths. Yeah, it's just crazy and so futile. And again, that's one of the reasons I think Falkenheim was just going for this meat grinder. He's like, just keep killing him on that hill and we'll take that hill. And then, but yeah, it was going both ways and I don't think it, it was working out for him. If Even if that was his plan, it was a shitty-ass plan. Yeah. And again, I think it became his plan. <laughs> After I'm just not fact. so sure it was his plan initially. 
Oh, but no, we uh, <laughs> we got them right where we want them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The battlefield became like something out of a nightmare. It was churned up earth and giant shell holes filled with rainwater that became putrefied by the rotting corpses inside them. The sky was blacked out with smoke and fire. Rats and lice dominated the trenches, which stank of human feces because leaving the trench to actually use the bathroom was a great way to die in a pile of your own shit. And there were obliterated and rotting horses all over the place. Yeah, one uh, French historian uh, who was there and observed it said there was basically two colors at Verdun. There was black and there was red, and the red was splattered horses. They were just everywhere. Just nothing but darkness and dead horses. I, I really just feel like this helps to paint the picture of this has not been the most deadly battle in human history, but my God. It's just awful. It would have been a fucking nightmare to be a part of. Yeah. And you're, I, this is the one place in history I think, like you put me in the Battle of Kenai, you put me, you know, the Psalm anywhere in World War One. I'm thinking. You're going to oh, be tucking your head in your hands and crying no matter what battle you're yeah, in. Yeah. You're talking about shitting in the trenches. I, <laughs> I shat myself the first time I you heard an artillery show. You could be on the Persian show. side of the Battle of fucking Thermopylae and you're going to be, oh, 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 yeah. Like I said, they're talking about shitting in the trenches. Like, that's a big problem. It's like, I've been covered in shit this whole time, fellas. Like, as soon as I heard the first shot, I'm like, oh, floodgates are open. But no, like, this is like, I think this is one of the few moments in history that I have, I have read about or studied that I'm like, if I'm there, I'm just wishing to die. I'm just like, just, just fucking end this. I can't do however long you're going to make me stand here and deal with this torture. Because it's just straight up death and murder and mayhem and suffering and there's no good that comes out of this fucking battle so no. I, I i don't Not think yeah there are a few places in history like you you watch a world war ii movie and you think oh yeah i could be there and i'd survive and i'd be the hero like here i think i'd be like day three just fucking kill me just get it over with i'm not i'm not dealing with this shit i'm not gonna be a hero coming out of this i'm just gonna be a broken fucking human and the big thing for me man it's like there's a lot of really, really just awful battles that people have been involved in. Mm -hmm. And it was for a purpose. Right. And I feel like this was really <laughs> I just falsely symbolic. Yes. Like, the, I don't think Ver, Verdun mattered fuck all to either army, really. Right. Yeah. It's completely un unimportant territory. Yeah. It was just like, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I get Fucking it. Fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. It would suck to die for that. Yeah, and and you know, like like we say, other battles in history they last a day. You know, it's one day of just the awful day of your worst day of your life. You know, a few hours. The morning it starts getting hot in the afternoon. Everybody calls it off. This yeah, is not three hundred. Yeah, ten fucking months of suffering, and especially the French would rotate their soldiers, so you'd have to leave. You still might have to come back to Verdun and fight again. The Germans just kept you there till you died, and so if you're on the German side, man, it's just torture. For 10 months, if you survive this battle. Yucky. <laughs> Hashtag yucky. Hashtag <laughs> In June, the Germans launched a new brand of gas shells filled with phosgene gas. The fun thing about phosgene gas is that it doesn't burn or cause ill effects right away. So the French sat there breathing it in for a while before it actually began to kill them. 
but still the French were resilient in their defense. By this time, Philippe Pétain had been given a promotion of sorts and was replaced by a General Robert Nouveau. That same month, he famously said to his men, This is a decisive moment. The Germans feel they are being hunted down on all sides and are launching violent and desperate attacks against our front in the hopes of reaching the gates of Verdun before they are themselves attacked by the reunited forces of the Allied armies. They shall not pass! Some good Gandalf. Some good Gandalf. Anybody that says Lord of the Rings was not inspired by the oh, wars in Europe? 100% was. <laughs> Idiots. Yeah. Idiots. Tolkien served in World War One. I. I mean, he wasn't in Verdun because he's English, but no, he served there, so obviously Gandalf is French. Clearly. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Nivelle was right. In July of 1916, the English and the Russians both attacked German positions, forcing the Germans to pull forces away from Verdun. In August, Erich von Falkenhayn was fired and replaced by the duo of Erich Ludendorff and Paul Hindenburg. They showed up, took one look around, and said, What the fuck is this shit? They immediately moved the German forces into defensive positions and held out until December when a general withdrawal from Verdun was ordered. In the end, over 24 million artillery shells were fired at the Battle of Verdun, and the effects are still seen to this day, and parts of it are off-limits because unexploded ordnance still rests there. The French suffered 377,000 casualties. The Germans suffered 337,000 casualties. Falkenhayn's meat grinder would have negative effects for both sides, and the war would rage on for another two years. And while we're done with uh, the Battle of Verdun, we're going to pick things up from there in the Great War later. But first a quote from German soldat J. Ayun. I wanted to see Verdun. I wanted to take part in the Great Battle. As soon as I saw the battlefield, in spite of my 14 months of active service, I thought... He who has not seen Verdun has not seen Vaugh. And that's war. Yeah. Translated to all the Chris's of the world. Thank you. End quote. <laughs> that's what he said. That's how he finishes. Yeah, yeah. He, he said that. And then, and then the quote ended. And now it's me again. Okay, good. End of story. It's very helpful that he lost his accent, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we told the story of Verdun. We're probably going to pick it up with the Battle of the Somme at some point, but not next week. We're going back to some ancient history, some very cool stuff from back then. But right now, Gregory, it is time for Fast Facts. Fast Fact number one. The British tried to pin the sinking of the Lusitania on its captain, William Turner, by saying he disobeyed commands from the Admiralty. Unfortunately for them, the first man to investigate the sinking was an Irish coroner who was a supporter of Sinn Féin, the party that supported Irish freedom from the English. In the end, Turner was acquitted. Fast fact number two. Future British Prime Minister Winston Churchill would write that to call Verdun a battle was inappropriate because there didn't seem to be any set goals in the German attack. He said it was actually a siege which we are sure was a very important distinction to all of the men who suffered there during battle and ultimately <laughs> <Yeah>. died. 
They're just arguing with each other. It's a siege. It's a battle. <laughs> they both die. <laughs> Goodbye. Fast fact number three. During this time, hundreds of Americans joined up to support the French cause, primarily as pilots. They believed that France had supported them in 1776, so they'd support France in 1916. Their unit was aptly named the Lafayette Squadron after Marquis de Lafayette, the Frenchman who had served as an advisor and was like a son to George Washington. Fast Fact Number 4 At one point, French observers noted a giant plume of flame shooting out of the captured Fort Douaumont. Turns out some Bavarian soldiers had decided to brew coffee on top of a stack of explosive crates. Yeah. Whoops. A spark ignited the explosives, and 700 German soldiers were killed instantaneously. Woo! All right, we did it. Did it again. Man, I feel like we, we just nailed that shit. Like, people are like, I don't know much about Verdun. I don't know much about World War I. It was probably okay. It was probably just a, you know, just a real fun time. You know, I, I've seen some movies about war, and war's always fun. No, you idiots! It was awful, and it made you feel bad, but also you laughed while you felt bad, so it was okay. So, here we are, at the end of this story. Eventually, you'll get on my level, where when you feel bad, you get sexually aroused, and <laughs> you can't quite explain it, and it takes years of therapy to discover what happened mm-hmm. years and years ago to make you feel that way. <laughs> We have started you on that journey. You're welcome. You are welcome. Well, Greg, the humans can check us out at 100 History on all their social media platforms, 100proofhistory.com. If you like what you hear, maybe go to 100proofhistory.com, check out the Patreon, where you can find all sorts of old episodes. We reference them all the time during these episodes, just kind of tie in these stories together. Uh, you can find all sorts of cool shit on that for just $3 a month. Gregory, what else? I ain't got shit else, baby. All right, let's get the fuck out of here. Yes! Goodbye. Oh, thank God. Bye. Like, if I make a sandwich out of this Oscar Mayer bologna, I'm a disgusting human, but if I just eat slices of it out of the fucking fridge, I'm just getting a snack. It's a snack on the go. Yeah. The protein, snack man. on the go, man. There's only one thing left to plug. What's that? And I'm hoping, I'm hoping my wife is listening right now. Mm-hmm. My butthole's puckered up. Oh, oh, shit. Yeah. I was, I was thinking you needed to, like, defrost some meat in the, in the sink so you should have to plug that up but no you're talking about your butt again Greg always thinking about his ass you know what if I had that ass that's all I'd think about too I'm not gonna lie uh, I was thinking peg anyway I fucked <laughs> up a joke <laughs> stupid well you can plug the b-hole with a plug somebody wanted to just make everything perfect before we started the podcast and now we didn't get to bullshit enough that was you <laughs> I know <laughs> sore tits are sore from feeding the piggies at the petting zoo (laughs) I got caught again they banned me this time (laughs) look at my sore nipples yeah they were sore fucking pigs (laughs) a goddamn babe couldn't get enough it's like he was the run or something babe and piglet
Piglet used teeth. <laughs> Piglet was just down there dangling from the dick. <laughs> you know that's not a nipple. You know. Don't pretend Poo- anymore. <laughs> Pooh Bear doesn't wear pants either. <laughs> <laughs> Future British <laughs> uh, I've cucked myself <laughs> Welcome to Chris land You stupid bitch <laughs> Enjoy the ride <laughs> It gets worse from here But you're probably into that aren't you <laughs> Future British. You did it. You said, said British. It right and it surprised me. <laughs> Been there. Been there. I know. That's you. You're rubbing off on me. The cuckoo is spread. <laughs> it does that.